We're here with Linda Barnes, admin of Debbie Mercer's online support group, Healing After Experiencing Covert Passive Aggressive Narcissism, to discuss today future faking and toxic hope, which is something regularly raised in the group as something lots of people struggle with. Thanks, Linda. Really good to be back again, um, talking this time about something that does feed into previous discussions that we've had too. And so many people find themselves successfully hoovered back into situations as a result uh, of this and sometimes are, are quite often convinced to remain in abusive situations, often for decades, uh, purely because of this topic. These uh, things seem to be so full of terms, don't they, Linda? Future faking and toxic hope sound pretty straightforward. Why are there so many specific terms for them in this kind of abuse? Well, yeah, they do seem straightforward. Um, but like everything else, when you're already impacted by the effects of psychological abuse, but you haven't yet recognised it, it's really difficult to see these things as being part of the abusive cycle. Instead, we tend to think that things might have finally turned a corner and that the other person has at last seen the light, as it were. So do you have any examples of what future faking might look like, Linda? Yes, we see them all the time. These are circumstances that most usually come about when the penny starts to drop and really that you've had enough. You might have been challenging the abuse or even reached the point of indifference and perhaps have started to distance yourself and be beginning to do your own thing in a relationship. Of course, you might have actually even said that you think the relationship's over. And this is what can prompt a sudden change of behaviour like this. In terms of what happens... Uh, all kinds of things, really. But we see letters written, um, openly acknowledging poor treatment of you, promising to treat you better in the future. Um, some people say they, they realise that they have some kind of a problem and they understand now that maybe they need therapy. Some people say they've turned to God and the church and are seeking guidance, etc. And, you know, some of these people will actually go and see a therapist or even speak to a pastor. Or at least they say that's what they're doing. We might also see tears and apologies and they're suddenly doing the things we've been asking of them for years. You know, they don't have to be big things, but we've been asking for all sorts of things. So things like fixing that light fitting that's never worked or just making the odd meal. They might promise bigger things like that holiday that's never happened or to finally fix up the house. So they do actually do some of these things then. It's not just all about promises, Linda. No, no, they do. They do something sometimes, yes. Uh, it's all on the basis of now suddenly understanding all that you've been saying that's been previously ignored with the suggestion that this is how things will proceed from here on in. And that's the element of future faking, really, because it never lasts long term. So it's not genuine then. Is it just an attempt to keep you in that situation? Well, it, it is definitely an attempt to keep you in the situation. But, you know, these people live very much in the moment, which is one of the main reasons it all seems so genuine. Uh, and that's what makes us sit up and take notice, because it is so convincing. At the time, in the moment, it's, it's quite likely that they do mean it. But it's really driven by their almost panicking. They tend never to realise that, that we do have limits, probably because our boundaries are generally quite weak. And even when we have them, they continue to push them and um, we don't really usually enforce them or we give in. So they have something of a shock when they see things about us really start to change. 
They just don't expect that. If they haven't seen it coming, they'll seriously worry about the increasing possibility that they could be left alone. And the word they'll probably use with that is abandoned. We, we hear that quite a lot. I know you're going to abandon me. Because that would leave them without supply. Now, for any covert passive-aggressive narcissist, that's a truly frightening prospect. So they'll suddenly try to start turning things around to get things to return to the status quo. The thing is, though, it's all about them. And all about them trying to keep things as they are. But with no intention of keeping it up? Well, they might very well intend to in that moment. But even if that's genuinely the case, they don't. It isn't part of their pathology to put you first at all. So this is really an incredible effort to them. One that they can't ever sustain. And in truth, one that they resent having to do. The only reason this happens at all is because at that moment in time, they're doing all they can to protect themselves going forward. And finding themselves alone without the supply they need is the last thing they'd ever want. In fact, that's their nightmare scenario. This seems uh, really cruel though, doesn't it? Making someone think that finally, often after years of not being heard, they're being listened to and they're demonstrating that the things you've asked for can be done. And it's that fact that after years of getting precisely nowhere and then finding that things do appear to be changing. That's what has us reconsidering things. Because this is all we've wanted. To be seen, to be heard and to be appreciated. And now we see it starting to happen. And often with lots of apologies and promises, promises of it continuing. Because they've finally realised, etc. But this is what then leads us to have toxic hope. And it's a common belief that narcissists never apologise too, isn't it? So that will have people thinking maybe they're not narcissistic at all and that maybe they've got things wrong. Absolutely. And this is where some of the generalised material out there doesn't help us at all. And people really only rarely truly understand that there are some very big differences between the behaviour we see with the more wild, widely known overt narcissists as opposed to coverts. This is one of them. Coverts have no problem at all in apologising if it suits them. It's the same with tears. It doesn't apply to everyone, of course, but it's not at all uncommon for covert narcissists to cry and appear heartbroken. And where this happens, it's true. They are heartbroken. It's just not for the reasons you think they are. In fact, you might hear endless apologies, sometimes accompanied by tears, and this makes it all so very convincing. Especially if you've believed that narcissists ne never do either of these things. You're quite right, then it has you questioning if they're narcissistic at all. So these generalisations and myths are very dangerous indeed. But what you don't see is action. And by that, I don't mean that they've done the dishes for a week. I mean long-term, sustained action. Conditional apologies or apologies without appropriate action are nothing but empty words. Just in the same way as apologies when they then go on to do the exact same thing over and over again. That isn't an apology. That's just a means of facilitating ongoing abuse. What do you mean by conditional apologies? 
the ones that start with things like, I'm sorry if you were offended. I'm sorry if you didn't like me going out with my friends. You know, those sort of things are not apologies at all. They're just pushing the issue back onto you. But going back to this change behaviour then, doesn't this mean that they have heard you finally and that they are at least trying? Well, this is exactly what they want you to believe. But, you know, this is much more telling than that. Because in getting to this point, the point of exasperation, <laughs> the point of talking about ending a relationship or whatever, you've been ignored for the longest time already, having no doubt tried everything you can possibly think of to be heard, to explain things every which way you can think, to be seen, all with no result whatsoever. And only now, when, when they've pushed you to the end of your tether, do things change. And all this really tells you is that you were heard all the time, often for years, but they chose not to acknowledge you or to do any of it. It's not that they didn't understand or they couldn't do any of it. They chose to dismiss and ignore your more than reasonable requests, wants, needs and desires. That says everything about the person you're dealing with here on a proven, repeated, long-term basis. It's not the one who is now suddenly saying that they've had some kind of epiphany, that they've had a light bulb moment that's the catalyst of change. No, they've heard you all along. There's nothing new in what you're saying. It's just new to them that they've pushed things way too far. And now it's a case of prioritising and resecuring you and your supply. So are we saying that as soon as they see things getting back to normal, that's it? Everything goes back to normal? Well, pretty much, because all of this is born out of their insecurity and fear. So that's a really powerful motivator to them to say now, um, and temporarily do, all the right things. And usually, you know, they're not big things we're ever asking for. They usually just boil down to the basics of any genuinely loving relationship or as daily life as a couple or family. So they're not being asked to set the world on fire here, although they often perceive it that way. And in that moment, that panicky moment for them, they do what they need to do to get the equilibrium back. As soon as they have... All these efforts dwindle away to nothing. And if anything, the abuse escalates going forward. Why would it escalate if they've been so panicked by all of this? Well, their successful hoovering of you brings them a high level of supply and the confidence that goes with that. This is what happens with our boundaries too. Every time we try to enforce a boundary, but then ultimately give in, they're empowered by that. It heightens that sense of control over us and makes them feel so much more confident because our stating we can't take anymore and that there'll be consequences if things don't change, etc. Then very quickly work against us when we don't follow through with any of those consequences. We've effectively given them the recipe to our own successful manipulation and they'll revert to the same thing next time because it's been proven to work. And there will be a next time for sure. Yes, um, you said, didn't you, in the trauma bond episode, I think, Linda, was it that there was an average number of times a person goes back on a decision to end a relationship? Was it seven, I think you said, um, before realising that nothing is going to change? So 
this is how that happens then, is it? Yes, that's right. We're already often dealing with severe cognitive dissonance by this time. And it's the trauma bond that comes into play too when we're offered these breadcrumbs of hope, making us think that we're finally returning to those heady early days when everything was so good. But it becomes toxic hope because the change we're looking for isn't going to happen beyond temporarily and superficially. So it's unfounded and is doing nothing more than keeping us in a toxic situation. We've done a two-part episode, uh, as you say, on both cognitive dissonance and the trauma bond because it really is important to understand what we're feeling and what role both these things play in the cycle of abuse and particularly in, in how they keep us stuck. We're saying in those episodes that all these things are linked and we see here how future faking and toxic hope do link into both those subjects too. If people don't yet understand those concepts, it will be useful to them to listen to those podcasts, perhaps. And one of the things that's so often said is that they realise there's something wrong and that they'll seek therapy, asking for help to work to put things right, and sometimes insisting that couples therapy is the way if they both maybe want the relationship to work. Uh, this would sound really hopeful and convincing too, wouldn't it? Indeed, yes, because at heart... Most of us are fixers and rescuers. And to hear someone say this after years of struggle often feels like a real eureka moment. But this is truly fraught with danger. The minute someone says they want you to help them to change, you're on really dubious ground. Couples therapy is pretty much the last thing we'd recommend here too. Because there's a very real danger in that. Because so often... We really struggle to find a therapist that truly understands the dynamic of um, covert passive-aggressive narcissism in these relationships. And then they just end up finding themselves being used to triangulate the victim. Obviously, that causes even more doubt. And that results in just ever more effort to communicate better with the abuser and for the victim to put in more and more effort. And these are the very last things that we need in these circumstances. Therapists without a thorough understanding of CPAN abuse and how it manifests can fail to recognise it and then cause untold harm rather than do good because it just empowers the abuser even more whilst totally confusing and disempowering the victim. So would you never recommend therapy then, Linda? Oh, I'd never say never, but it's just for people to be aware that while therapists might say that they're specialised in this area, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are. We've had people specifically ask in which areas of narcissism a therapist specialises, only for them to receive a cut-and-paste answer straight from Google. But the thing is, if they're not truly specialised in this, a therapist will default to the usual mainstream modalities that they're familiar with. And the bottom line is that if you're dealing with someone with significantly elevated narcissistic traits, potentially heading towards the disordered end of the spectrum, then solutions designed for mainstream or normal circumstances simply do not work. And if people try to make them work, we just find that it does much more harm than good. So people just need to be aware of this before agreeing to anything. So... What would you suggest if someone is really pushing for you to help them and to go to therapy with them? 
Well, I think I'd suggest telling them that the onus is on them to work through therapy with a view to identifying their own issues and then so that they themselves can work toward change. No one can do it for them. This is their responsibility. And part of working out whether they're truly committed to changing things is our standing back and watching what efforts they're actually making themselves. If they continue to push about couples counselling, I think I'll be saying that in the first instance, if anything, both parties might need their own therapist so that any future, any future possible couples counselling would have the better chance of success because both parties will be entering it from a much more settled and healthy position. This also gives you time to stand back and see just what actions they're taking uh, over time and whether they're bringing about any change. If need be, the couple's counselling situation could be reviewed a little later on. That's really difficult though, Linda, isn't it? If they're looking for you to demonstrate your interest in working through things too. Oh, it can be difficult, of course. But you're not refusing to work on it. It's a case of how you're working on it. If you're stating a willingness to see your own therapist, that is a commitment to work through things, but with support. And it's the safest and healthiest way, certainly rather than going straight for couples counselling. By this time, in any relationship that's going down this road, an awful lot of damage has already been done. So it would be really wise to deal with those things individually through therapy and then see where that takes you. In most cases, we won't see them follow through with therapy. Or as commonly happens, they go to one or two sessions and then come back saying things like the therapist has said they're fine and that the victim is a narcissist. It's complete nonsense, of course, but at least you'll have a better idea of what you're actually really facing. And Linda, have you got examples of that happening? Yes, it's really quite common. Remember, CPANs don't actually believe that they have a problem. And the whole circumstances will be spun around onto you in therapy. And that's a place where they truly love to play the victim. It's a kind of supportive and validating environment uh, in therapy that provides excellent supply to them. And that's another reason not to go jointly unless it is with someone who truly specialises in this subject. So the advice here is to give it time and space and to just see what they actually do then, is it? Is that what you'd say, Linda? Yes, it is. It's about standing firm and not falling for a show of good behaviour in the short term. This is all about actions, not words. And the actions you need to believe are those that you see with your own two eyes, not those you might be told about. Remember too that depending upon how panicked they are, you might see positive things happening for a week or two, maybe even a bit longer. But it starts to really take its toll much beyond that. It's different for everyone, of course, but this is more about watching what happens over longer periods rather than shorter ones. Quite literally, in this situation, time will be the best judge of what's really happening. Is there anything else to be mindful of, Linda? Oh, definitely. If the whole situation suddenly turns to one of complete sweetness and light that really makes you think that some sort of epiphany has happened, then be very, very careful. Especially if this is your second, third or fourth time trying again. 
because this can really be the most dangerous time. We can find ourselves lulled into a false sense of security during these times with our newfound hope that strengthens the trauma bond. And we can be very much off our guard here. But this is often when the worst of their work is being done under the radar and behind the scenes in preparation for either you finally leaving them or they're securing new supply and discarding you. This can be when the smear campaign is really being ramped up and financial, financial skullduggery is taking place, while you've taken your eye off the ball, thinking that everything is finally so much better. So rather than relaxing and falling into that toxic hope scenario again, this is a time to really keep your wits about you and make sure you have all you need, just in case a discard is round the corner. When you say all you need? Yeah, the things that prove your role in the relationship. Things like bank records, statements. All the things that <laughs> we find can suddenly disappear during these times or they're difficult to get hold of. And that then leave us in a really precarious position of not being able to show the true financial position, etc. Uh, at that point. Keep an eye on credit cards, etc. too. Because this is also a time that significant debt can be racked up that we can find ourselves jointly liable for. Sea pines find it hard to keep up this kind of good behaviour. And it's far more often only achievable because they're actually working hard to get all their ducks in a row in order to leave. And they're doing that while you're not looking. It's amazing what they can do when it's in their own best interests and when they know it's only short term because they're going to be discarding you as soon as everything is in place. Or, conversely, they might be preparing for when you finally leave them. Either way, though, it leaves you in a bad position. That's awful, Linda. So you're living in hope whilst they're working against you. Yeah, but in truth, Linda, you've just summed up the entire nature of these relationships. Yes, we're hanging on and living in hope that we might finally be getting back to those fantastic early days, driven by the trauma bond, while they're doing everything that's the best for them. If they were truly interested in working with you, things would never have reached this stage in the first place. Caution, in all respects, is always the safest way with these personality types, as things are rarely ever as they seem, and most definitely not where there's a sudden positive change. It's just not in them to be able to do this for, for anything but the shortest period of time, and only then when they're the main beneficiary of their efforts. This isn't ever about valuing you. It's always about looking after themselves. Thank you, Linda. I guess the message here is that it's always better to be safe than sorry. Um, is, that, is that right, would you say? Yeah, definitely. Uh, always better to be safe than sorry. So I think that's the end of, of this podcast. So please, uh, everybody, join us again next time for more insights into, into the life with a covert, passive, aggressive narcissist. Thank you for listening.